0: Before we get started, I wanted to add a disclaimer here. First off, we will not be mentioning the shooter's name in this episode or any episode ever. These people seek glory in celebrity, and we will not assist them in their glory hunt. Next, I will be reading certain statements that were posted by the shooter. The shooter, whom shall not be named, used expletives in his posts on the social media site Gab. Some news organizations have censored them. We at Dialogue DeNovo believe that it does a disservice to the events that have transpired to do so. We will be reading them directly to demonstrate to you, our listeners, the true evil this person espoused. Finally, Jake and I see this podcast as a partnership. We are in this together 50-50. But if you check our filings, you will see that I am listed as the Editor-in-Chief. I have never tried to, quote, pull rank on Jake because I do not view myself as Jake's superior, nor should I. However, for this one episode, for this one specific time, I will. My name is Richard Leibovitz. My contact information is readily available. If you have a problem with anything that I say in this show, including the language, content, or anything Jake says... Direct your displeasure towards me. Direct your hate mail towards me. I promise you this. I do not care if it takes me a decade to do it. I will respond to each and every one of you. Now, to the show.
1: We've thrown out all the other stories because it appears that America has finally woken up to growing antisemitism, both in this country
0: and abroad. And all it took was 11 of my people getting murdered in a synagogue on a Shabbat Saturday morning. Welcome back to Dialogue De Novo.
1: Welcome back to Dialogue De Novo. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Richard Leibovitz. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter... Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review while you're at it.
0: Last Saturday, October 27th, 2018, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, three Jewish communities gathered in different parts of the Tree of Life Synagogue at 9.45 a.m. One of those groups was there to celebrate a Brit milah, more commonly known as a bris, which is a Jewish ceremony on the eighth day of a boy's life where the circumcision is performed. Minutes later, This joyous occasion, along with the other congregations celebrating the return of the Sabbath day, would be met with shock and horror. A man, an avowed white supremacist, entered the building heavily armed and opened fire on two of the three congregations, including the Briss. Eleven people were killed. Those eleven people were Rose Malinger, 97, of Squirrel Hill, Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, of Edgewood Borough. Cecil Rosenthal, 59, of Squirrel Hill, David Rosenthal, 54, of Squirrel Hill, Daniel Stein, 71, of Squirrel Hill, Richard Gottfried, 65, of Ross Township, Joyce Feinberg, 75, of Oakland, Melvin Wax, 88, of Squirrel Hill, Bernice Simon, 84, of Wilkinsburg, Sylvan Simon, 86, of Wilkinsburg, and Irving Younger. 69 of Mount Washington.
1: Rose Malinger, 97 of Squirrel Hill, retained her sharp wit, humor, and intelligence until the very last day, her family said. No matter what obstacles she faced, she never complained. She did everything she wanted to do in her life. Rose Malinger was a pillar of the Jewish community and the Tree of Life Synagogue, which she was a part of for over six decades. The synagogue was the center of her very active life. She was there every weekend, and the people of the congregation brought her great joy as she brought to them. She is survived by her three children,
0: five grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. Jerry Rabinowitz, 66, of Edgewood Borough. Dr. Jerry Rabinowitz was killed when he ran outside to try to help the wounded, according to his nephew, Avishai Ostron. In addition to being the president of the congregation, he was a doctor, a healer, and when shots were heard, he ran outside to try to see if anyone was hurt and needed a doctor. That was Uncle Jerry. That's just what he did, Ostron wrote on Facebook. He always wore a bow tie, Ostron added. There's just something about guys who wear bow ties, something youthful, something fun, and that is a word definitely embodied by my Uncle Jerry. Fun. You know how they say that there are people who just lighten up a room you know that cliche about people whose laugh was infectious? That was Uncle Jerry. It wasn't a cliche, it was just his personality. His laughter, his chest heaving up and down with a huge smile on his face, that was Uncle Jerry. And that bow tie, that bow tie that you know, know made people smile, you know made his patients more at ease. Rabinowitz was a compassionate, loving, non judgmental physician. Pittsburgh dentist Steven DeFusco told ABC affiliate in Pittsburgh, WTAE, he sat down, talked to you. There wasn't a minute he didn't pay attention to you. A former patient said the slain doctor was one of his heroes. In the old days for HIV patients in Pittsburgh, he was to one he was the one to go to. Former patient Michael Kerr wrote on Facebook. He often held our hands without rubber gloves and always, always hugged us as we left the office. I got lucky beyond words because he gently told me around November, 1995, that it was time to begin taking medications. There was an ACTG trial for two HIV medications that saved my life, he wrote. Thank you, Dr. Rabinowitz for having always been there during the most terrifying and frightening time of my life. You will be remembered by me always. You are one of my heroes.
1: Cecil Rosenthal, 59, and David Rosenthal, 54, of Squirrel Hill. Cecil and David never missed a service and were always at the synagogue because it was a place they felt most safe, says fellow congregant Scott Levin. The brothers were always together, says congregant Katie Levin. So she said it brings her comfort to know that they died together because she doesn't know how one could live without the other. Both brothers were developmentally disabled, Cecil had a love for life and for those around them, according to a statement from Achiva, a local organization which provides support for people with disabilities. Cecil's laugh was infectious. David was so kind and had a gentle spirit. Together, they looked out for one another, and they were inseparable. Most of all, they were kind, good people, with a strong faith and respect for everyone.
0: Daniel Stein, 71, of Squirrel Hill. Daniel Stein was a, quote, simple man who loved going to synagogue and playing with his grandson. His son, Joe Stein, wrote on Facebook, He was the best man you'd ever want to know, Stephen Hall, a nephew of Daniel Stein, told ABC News. Daniel was incredibly active in the synagogue community, where he was a mentor, provided services to the elderly community, and served as president of his congregation, Hall said. He called his uncle a happy, caring, sympathetic man, who had two wonderful kids and a beautiful wife. Daniel also loved to show off his seven-month-old grandchild. Now his grandson, quote, is never going to know whose grandfather is, Hall said.
1: Richard Gottfried, 65, of Ross Township. Richard was a successful dentist who had reconnected with his face following his father's death and at one point became president of his congregation. He is survived by his wife, Margaret A. Pegg, who is also a dentist do not let his death be in vain drive out evil from your own life and help another to drive it out of their life the only way to combat evil is with love his wife told the pittsburgh post-gazette
0: joyce feinberg 75 of oakland joyce feinberg a former research specialist is survived by her two sons and grandchildren Her husband, quote, internationally acclaimed statistician Stephen Feinberg, died in 2016. Joyce was a research specialist at the University of Pittsburgh's Learning Research and Development Center from 1983 until she retired in 2008. Quote, my mother-in-law was one of the kindest humans I'd ever met. Her daughter-in-law, Marnie Feinberg, told ABC News, if you knew her, For five minutes, if you knew her for 20 years, you felt exactly the same way. She traveled extensively with her husband, and they met people internationally. She would stay in touch with them. So there are people from 50 years ago who she met once in Australia who are good friends, she said. She would stay up nights making sure everybody was staying in touch. I've never seen anything like it before. I think everybody tries to do that, but she succeeds. Joyce Feinberg's most important relationships were the ones she had with her six grandchildren who range in ages from 15 to 8. Melvin Wax, 88, of Squirrel Hill.
1: Melvin, a retired accountant, was a fixture of the congregation. His wife, Sandra, passed away in 2016. Melvin was known for being one of the few people who always showed up to services early. According to Marilyn Hogginsburg. if someone didn't come that was supposed to lead services, he could always lead services and do everything. He knew how to do everything. According to Wax's friend,
0: Myron Snyder. Bernice, 84, and Sylvan, 86, Simon of Wilkinsburg. Sylvan and Bernice were killed in the same synagogue they were married in December 1956, the Tribune Review reported. A loving couple... And they've been together forever, longtime friend Michael Stepeniak told the newspaper. I hope they didn't suffer much, and I miss them terribly. They held hands, and they always smiled, and he would open the door for her, neighbor Heather Graham told the newspaper. They were really generous and nice to everybody. The couple's front door had three stickers, according to the Tribune Review. Support our troops. God bless America. In America the beautiful.
1: Irving Younger, 69 of Mount Washington. Irving was a regular volunteer and worshiper at the synagogue where he would come early and stay late, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported. Younger, a former small business owner and youth baseball coach, quote, was the most wonderful dad and grandpa, neighbor Tina Prinzner told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He talked about his daughter and grandson always. And he never had an unkind word to say about anybody.
0: May their memory forever be a blessing. So
1: we normally do a collaborative episode on Dialogue Nova, where the conversation is pretty regularly balanced in terms of speaking time. But this episode will be a little bit different. And while I will be participating, Richard will be doing what I expect to be a disproportionate amount of the talking. And there are really only two reasons why. First, I'm angry. I'm upset and I'm horrified by the events that took place last Saturday. Richard insists that I add, I have always been a great supporter of the Jewish people and have always been a great friend to Richard. We've had countless conversations about religion in general and Judaism in particular, and I will always consider myself an ally of the Jewish people. And to paraphrase the words of Glenn Beck earlier this week, if the world is coming for the Jews, I personally will proudly stand up and proclaim myself to be a Jew. But make no mistake, I am not Jewish and Richard is. So while I can offer my full sympathy, I can't fully grasp what this must be doing to those inside the Jewish community. And the second reason that Richard's going to be doing the majority of the talking is the simple fact that he's much better versed in anti-Semitism
0: than I. Richard? Thank you, Jake. To be clear, uh, I, asked to do, I asked to do a fair share of the talking. When Jake and I started law school, we were friendly. But I wouldn't classify us as friends per se because we never really hung out outside of school, but we were friendly. About a year ago, we were at a mutual friend's apartment before a law school event. When Jake pulled me aside, he said, can I ask you something? Before I got a chance to respond, he blurted out, why does nobody seem to care about the rise in anti-Semitism? I responded with, tradition, mostly. Now, I'm not kidding, though. He genuinely wanted to know my take, and that's, from my perspective, how our friendship got started, and it would be about a year later before we started the show. We wanted to cover this topic. We wanted to cover anti-Semitism, but we weren't sure when the appropriate timing would be. Unfortunately, that appropriate timing has come, and we're going to be covering it Not in full, but as best we can in a singular episode today. So, what do we know about the Pittsburgh shooter? First, he was in the synagogue for about 20 minutes. After the attack, as he was leaving the building, he encountered a law enforcement officer and the two exchanged gunfire. He went back inside to hide from SWAT officers. He was in fair condition when he was arrested with multiple gunshot wounds. He was not known to law enforcement before the shooting. He has blamed Jews for helping with the migrant caravan. One of the shooter's obsessions on social media was HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, a Jewish organization founded in the 1800s to resettle Jews fleeing from the pogroms in Eastern Europe. To date, it is the oldest refugee aid society in the world. It also rescues Jews and non-Jews facing persecution. They've recently changed that policy to include non-Jews. Their CEO was asked why the organization started helping non-Jews. His response? We no longer help refugees because they're Jewish. We help refugees because we are Jewish. The shooter called the people in the migrant caravans, quote, invaders. His most recent post Was five minutes before the police were alerted to the shooting. He wrote, "Hyas likes to bring in invaders that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in." His posts included criticism of President Trump. Some of these included, "Trump is surrounded by kikes." He also wrote, "Trump is a globalist, not a nationalist." And two days before the shooting, he said, there is no MAGA as long as there is a kike infestation. Now the shooting took place on October 27th. On October 29th, he appeared in court. Prosecutors vowed to pursue the death penalty. On October 31st, he was indicted on 44 counts, including hate crimes. On November 1st, The shooter pleaded not guilty. This shooting is the latest in a series of recent attacks on Jewish institutions. In the United States. In 1999, there was a shooting at the Los Angeles Jewish Community Center. Where the shooter fired 70 shots that wounded 5 people. Including 3 children. Luckily, no one was killed. 2006. There was a shooting at the Seattle Jewish Federation where the shooter shot six women, killing one. He had entered by forcing a 14-year-old girl at gunpoint to buzz the the building intercom. Once inside, he shot six people and called the police to tell them he had taken hostages. People who were inside the Federation said the shooter shouted about being a Muslim who was angry at Israel. However, sometime later, suggested that mental illness was to blame. The shooter was not a frequent worshiper at a mosque and at one point converted to Christianity. He received a life sentence. In 2009, there was a shooting at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. where the shooter fatally shot security guard Stephen Tyrone Johns. Two other security guards shot back. The shooter was a white supremacist and Holocaust denier who had self-published a book in which he praised Adolf Hitler. In 2014, there was a shooting at the Overland Park JCC. The shooter shot people in the parking lot of the Jewish Community Center and fired shots into the JCC building. He then left his car and went to a nearby Jewish retirement community, Village Shalom, where he also shot at people in the parking lot. Around the world, there have been countless attacks in Tunisia, in Turkey, in 2014, in Israel, where a terror attack by two Palestinians against a synagogue in western Jerusalem claimed five dead. Three Israeli-Americans, one israeli Briton, and a Druze policeman. The attack in the Harnof neighborhood was the first ever against a Jewish place of worship in Jerusalem. Both attackers were shot dead by the police. In Denmark, on 20, in 2015, A Danish citizen of Palestinian origin had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State, also known as ISIS, and opened fire on a cultural center in Copenhagen. Now, these attacks have not just taken place at JCCs and synagogues. In France, on March 19, 2012, a French Algerian Islamist killed three children and a teacher at the Ozar Hatora Jewish School in Toulouse. In Belgium, on May 24th, 2014, a man opened fire in the lobby of the Jewish Museum in Brussels, killing four. In France, on January 9th, 2015, four Jews were killed during a hostage taking at the Hyper Jewish supermarket in Paris by a jihadist.
1: As we sit recording this episode in downtown Chicago, it's noteworthy to bring up the fact that even here in our fairly peaceful community on the north side, are not insulated from the evils of anti-Semitism. Chicago as a city has a storied history with anti-Semitism, and we are sitting and recording mere miles from where, in 1999, a avowed white supremacist went on a shooting spree. He went to West Rogers Park, which is a Jewish enclave here in the city, and he shot at a group of Orthodox Jews who were standing outside a synagogue, wounding nine of them. Uh, Thankfully, God had his eyes on those Jews that day, and nobody died. Uh, The same white supremacist then went and killed the coach of the Northwestern basketball team, Ricky Birdsong, and then he took off to Indiana where he killed a Korean-American graduate student. On a more recent note, Just last month, October 1st, a young man, 24-year-old Eliyahu Muskowitz, was walking down the street in Rogers Park and was killed in a way that I think is best summed up as an execution. He was assassinated on the sidewalk, presumably for no other reason than being a readily identifiable Orthodox Jew. That shooter is still at large, so it's important that we take this to a community level. Here in Chicago, when we have to fight this on the ground.
0: So I've been searching for the right context to put into words what happened this past Saturday. Something that's little known about me is I like to write. I'll write my thoughts and feelings. I'll, I'll write fiction. I'll write anything. It's just a way for me to kind of rationalize and sort of wind down. And I've done it since since high school. So I started trying to put this into the proper context for me. Let me start here. My father was in town the weekend of the shooting in Chicago, staying with me. Everything we were doing seemed to immediately stop Saturday morning. We just sat in my apartment and watched the newscasters describe how four, then eight, then 11 of our fellow Jews had been gunned down in shul on Shabbat. I didn't realize it then, but in the days... Since, one of the things that has really stuck with me is that we both seem to be watching the news with a total lack of surprise that it was happening. Neither of us were in shock. Now, I don't want to speak for him. That's just how I perceived my father to be taking it. But there was just a lack of surprise now Since then, I've made an effort to speak to every Jewish person that I've seen. Some I knew previously, and some I didn't, and just heard them use Jewish phrases or saw them wearing a yarmulke. Each of them expressed the same sentiment, that we never thought if this could ever happen, but when this will happen. One elderly attorney, who I met at the Daily Center on Thursday, said... And I quote, it's actually pretty surprising that it took this long. To know the history of the Jewish people is to know why this thought process is not abnormal. So, after some reflection, here's what I've come up with. First, I want to mention a friend of mine. I won't mention him by name, but he knows who he is if he's listening. He lives in Pittsburgh, he's not very religious. But you never know on the off chance. And plus, his entire family lives there. Blocks away from the synagogue. It took me about more than an hour from the time I heard the story break until I was able to actually get in touch with him. And when he called me, one of the things he said was, I'm sorry it took so long to get to you. I had to check to see if my family was okay first. That's how close... To home, this hit for me. This is one of my dearest friends. Now, I woke up the day after the shooting to posts on Facebook from family friends from the Jewish community in Alabama. They were dropping their kids off at Sunday school where they were met with two armed guards. Before Sunday school began, these two armed guards, who regularly patrolled the synagogue each time Jews gather for any occasion, sat their children down, and explained to them what transpired the day before. They told these children how just yesterday, 11 people in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, were murdered for no reason other than the fact that they were Jewish. These patrolmen explained to the children and to their parents that they were there to protect them at all costs and that new security measures were being put in place to ensure their safety. Now, as I said before, the person who slaughtered these 11 Jews in Pittsburgh was an avowed white supremacist. He has stated that he murdered these Jews because he was against President Trump, believing him to be, quote, a puppet of the Jews. Now, while I mourn these 11 people who were murdered first, I mourn second Not because of white supremacy. Though this instance was committed by a white supremacist. The fact is that we have been slaughtered in other countries by white people who hate people of color and we've been slaughtered by people of color who hate white people. I'm not mourning because of violence from conservatism or violence from liberalism because we've been slaughtered by conservatives and we've been slaughtered by liberals. I'm mourning because as of Saturday morning, the United States has joined the universal list of nations where Jews have lived and where Jews have been slaughtered in mass. An inescapable fact is that each person on this planet who is not Jewish is connected to some organization, some religion, some ethnicity at some point in the last 2,500 years that has slaughtered Jews en masse, including those who are horrified by our people's history and who now call themselves our allies. This hatred was here generations before us and it will be here generations after. We cannot put an end to it. We've tried. It is incumbent upon all members of the Jewish faith. It is demanded of all members of the Jewish faith and our allies To make sure that our enemies, no matter what race, no matter what religion, no matter what creed or affiliation, know that they will never put an end to us. Now, I owe an apology to the Jewish community, to my people. I've not stood up enough to anti-Semitism, and I've not been a vocal enough supporter. And for that, I apologize. I will do better from here on out. You will hear me from whatever platform I can get a hold of. And if they come for the Jews again, I will be one of the first to go. Because I will no longer be silent when I see wrong being done to our people. I will no longer be intimidated. I will no longer be scared. The evils of this world cannot stop me from standing up for what I believe in. And the evils of this world cannot stop me from standing up for our people. Jake, I know there's something you wanted to add. Yeah. Yeah.
1: A lot of the chatter online and on the media this past week has been pointing fingers at one side of the aisle or another, and it's such a misguided conversation because the forces of evil at work that live at the heart of anti-Semitism have been around for millennia. The Jewish people, wherever they have been, they've never had a home. They've been excised from every country, every community, perhaps kept around only for the reason of showing the horrific things that will happen to them if they don't believe that Christ is their Savior. It's their only purpose. Or or Allah. It's been the only purpose that society writ large has found for the Jewish people. But I do want to read something because I think it shows the higher values that we can embody and that it's really demonstrative of it's an old and perhaps long forgotten strain of what it means to be a patriot and what it means to be an American and how we ought to be treating issues of this kind so in our mission statement for the podcast Richard read one line from a letter that George Washington wrote to the Hebrew Congregation of Newport, Rhode Island. But I thought it was well worth our time on this podcast to read the full letter. Um, The letter is dated 1790, and it is George Washington's
0: response to... uh, What is it, it, Richard? There was an act of anti-Semitism on this congregation. I believe it was vandalized. And he went... I believe he went to Rhode Island to respond but they had written him a letter and he praised they they praised his administration in the letter and in response if you when what Jake's about to read if you recognize the humility of him recognizing their praise it's it's actually quite great go ahead
1: yeah so I I would like to read the full letter because it it's the words of a man who's wise beyond anything that you see in society today so it starts with gentlemen while i receive with much satisfaction your address replete with expressions of esteem i rejoice in the opportunity of assuring you that i shall always retain grateful remembrance of the cordial welcome i experienced on my visit to newport from all classes of citizens The reflections on the days of difficulty and danger which are past, he's speaking of the American Revolution there, is rendered the more sweet from a consciousness that they are succeeded by days of uncommon prosperity and security. If we have wisdom to make the best use of the advantages which we are now favored, we cannot fail under the just administration of a good government to become a great and happy people. The citizens of the united states of america have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy a policy worthy of imitation all possess a like liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural rights, for happily the government of the United States, which which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they live under its protection, should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. It would be inconsistent with the frankness of my character not to avow that I am pleased with your favorable opinion of my administration and the fervent wishes for my felicity may the children of the stock of abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the good will of the other inhabitants while every one shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree and there shall be none to make him afraid may the father of all mercy scatter light and not darkness upon our paths and make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time, the way everlastingly happy. Signed, G. Washington.
0: Yeah, that, uh, I'm really glad you wanted to include that. That, too, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, is, might be one of my favorite lines. But I mean, president. it's just a remarkable sentiment that
1: a group of people that have historically never had a home can receive a letter from the president of the United States who makes it a point of saying that you're welcome here and in the cultural literacy of the letter in general when he talks about the vine and fig tree is that's the prophet micah so this is a man who's learned in uh the ways of the torah and and he studied hebrew and it's not just a haphazard half-hearted open-arm embrace of the jewish people it's a full-throated endorsement of the jewish people and i i think it's just remarkable and I've actually been to the synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island as a New Englander, and it's the oldest standing synagogue in the United States. It's actually a historical landmark, and you can go and visit it. And it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful building. So, anyway.
0: So I just wanted to add that we were under the Articles of Confederation, and then the Constitution was installed, and we adopted a new president. George Washington's first year taking office was 1789. He wrote this a little over 1 year into the first administra into the first term of the first administration of the president of the United States under the Constitution, the first year. Now, there's one thing I wanted to add at this point. This is out of the Sidor Seem Shalom and if you're if you have one on you it's page 415. It is the a prayer for our country. Our God and God of our ancestors, we ask your blessing for our country, for its government, for its leaders and advisors, and for all who exercise just and rightful authority. Teach them insights of your Torah that they may administer All affairs of state fairly, that peace and security, happiness and prosperity, justice and freedom may forever abide in our midst. Creator of all flesh, bless all inhabitants of our country with your spirit. May citizens of all races and creeds forge a common bond in true harmony. To banish hatred and bigotry and to safeguard the ideals and free institutions that are the pride and glory of our country. May this land under your providence be an influence for good throughout the world, uniting all people in peace and freedom and helping them to fulfill the vision of your prophet. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they experience war anymore. And let us say, Amen. Amen. I wanted to mention before we get into the broader context of anti-Semitism, I wanted to mention a few good things that I've seen in the events since the shooting. The first one is, if you ever want to turn to someone to act as a leader, to behave as a leader, if you ever want to see someone who has been through something horrific, but has come out being strong, even when he is clearly, clearly struggling. Look no further than Rabbi Jeffrey Myers of the Tree of Life Synagogue. Services started at 9.45 a.m., and he is not sure, but he believes sometime between 9.50 and 9.55 was when the shooter came in and began shooting. He had congregants in the front row that he ushered out of the synagogue so that they may be in safety. Everyone else he told to hide under the pews where they were sitting because he believed that they were thick enough to protect them. One of the people he ushered out through the back door off the pulpit was shot, and he tended to her. And he was also the first person to call the police to report the shooting. He stayed on the phone with the police for about 20 minutes. Now, he appeared on CNN, voicing a sign of both strength and humility while he was clearly, visibly shaken from what had transpired in his own congregation. And during the interview on CNN, he was asked... If he would like for President Trump to come visit, he responded, he is an American and all Americans are welcome. He said, he is my president. I am a citizen and I would like to see him. He didn't take a position on Trump. He, he merely said, yeah, yeah, we've been through a horrific tragedy and if he wants to come, that's fine. He actually said, if any American wants to come, that's fine. A couple days later, he appeared back on the same show on CNN, where he said that he had been receiving hate mail from anti-Trumpers. He said he would read one, and as he was reading one, two or three would come in, and his emails, had reached about 1,600 and he could no longer keep up hate mail. The man had just witnessed a horrific tragedy, had just played a vital role in saving people's lives in that horrific tragedy. And simply because he said, yeah, he's fine with the president coming, he's been receiving hate mail. And he's still stands up and he still provides the proper leadership and a sign of strength for his community, you need, you need to look no further than the courage of Rabbi Jeffrey Myers of the Tree of Life Synagogue. The next one is an article by Barry Weiss. She put out the same day as the shooting titled, A Massacre in the Heart of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The tagline was, Squirrel Hill will continue to live by the values that Jews have sustained for more than 2,000 years. They can never be gunned down. On a Saturday morning in March of 1997, I became a bat mitzvah at Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill. I wasn't supposed to be there. The previous October, a fire had blazed through my family's regular synagogue, Beth Shalom, less than a mile away. Anyone who is from Squirrel Hill or has ever spent time in the place where I was lucky to be raised, will not be surprised to know how the community responded with this disaster. Jews and Gentiles alike ran towards the fire. As Beth Shalom's executive director told a reporter at the time, I didn't have to look. Everyone came to me. The line put me in mind of my favorite of Fred Rogers' sayings. Quote, When I was a boy, I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You can always find people who are helping. Squirrel Hill, Mr. Rogers' real-world neighborhood, is full of such people. His home was three blocks away. He isn't the only one. Mike Tomlin, the coach of the Steelers, lives nine doors down. Rich Fitzgerald, the county executive, a few doors farther. The mayor lives five blocks away. I also wanted to mention that this story was put out by, I don't know who is behind Jewish Tweets, but this story was put out by Jewish Tweets. It says, the funeral yesterday for brothers Cecil and David Rosenthal were who were killed in last Saturday's synagogue shooting was attended by 100 members of the Pittsburgh Steelers including quarterback Ben Roethlisberger and owner Art Rooney II. The Steelers and the Penguins have also added the Magen David, the Star of David. If you don't know what the Star of David is, it's the star at the center of the Israeli flag. They've added the Magen David to their uniforms. They've also added logos in solidarity yeah, they, uh,
1: they added the text uh, Stronger Than Hate underneath the Buggy as
0: well. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on November 2nd had on the cover of their newspaper the day after a lot of the funerals. It was officially called Day 3 of the services. The cover at the top and on their website and I believe it's still on their website, is written in Aramaic or block Hebrew, Yidkadah V'Yidkadah Shemeraba, which translates to Magnified and Sanctified Be Your Name. It's a tremendous sign of solidarity. There's another story I wanted to mention. This one's by Eli Rosenberg of the New York Times on October 30th. The headline is, I'm Dr. Cohen, the powerful humanity of the Jewish hospital staff that treated the shooter. The headline actually has the shooter's name. I just, again, will not be referencing it. The man accused in the brutal killings of 11 people in the synagogue in Pittsburgh was taken to a hospital after he was apprehended to be treated for his injuries. He suffered in a gunfight with the police. In the emergency room when he arrived, he was shouting, I want to kill all the Jews, according to the hospital's president, if he only knew about the identity of the team tasked with keeping him alive. At least three of the doctors and nurses who cared for the shooter at the Allegheny General Hospital were Jewish, according to President Jeffrey K. Cohen. Quote, We're here to take care of sick people. Cohen, who is a member of the congregation, where the massacre happened, said in an interview with ABC affiliate WTAE, we're not here to judge you. We're not here to ask, do you have insurance or do you not have insurance? We're here to take care of people that need our help. Cohen's simple and unapologetic description of how the shooter came to be treated fairly and impartially by the very people he had supposedly hated has traveled around the world. Perhaps it is a stark reminder that there is something more powerful than caring for one's own. Perhaps it was Cohen's radical demonstration of humanity in an era increasingly marked by the naked partisanship and tribalism. I wanted to add a post that I was sent by Rabbi Latz. The post reads, The doctor who operated on hashtag tree of shooter is a Jew. The shooter shouted anti-Semitic slurs, at him even as he tended to his wounds. The doctor said he was proud to offer medical care to a human who was wounded. You want to know what it means to be Jewish? Here's your answer. It's an incredible story. Yeah. I think that's the perfect context. Now, Jewish leaders in call for unity after shooting welcome outsiders to Shabbat. This is by Julia Jacobs in Washington Post on October 31st. In preparation for the first Sabbath, following the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, Jewish leaders are signaling that they do not plan to close off their communities out of fear. Instead, many are encouraging Jews and non-Jews alike across the country to attend services on Friday night or Saturday, spreading the hashtag hashtag show up for Shabbat across social media as an invitation to all. The campaign started by the American Jewish Committee is meant to offer a space for people to express grief over the massacre and show solidarity with the victims, said David Harris, chief executive of the organization, which is a Jewish advocacy group. I've seen posts on Facebook since. I've heard, I've seen many, many stories. Synagogues were packed to the gills. Another thing that's been very, very moving for me are these vigils and these interfaith services that have been held for the Jews murdered. A few in particular. One was held by Otis Israel in Washington. When I lived in Washington, D.C., that was the synagogue I would go to. It's a huge synagogue with a huge congregation, and they were packed. They were packed. Another one is the interfaith service that we held at Loyola where I was asked to give one of the prayers. It was held in a small room, but every seat was filled, and there were some that were just standing. The final one I want to mention is a interfaith service that was held at my hometown synagogue in Montgomery, Alabama, on Tuesday, October 30th. Twice that I know of for certain, but it could very well be more, large swastikas have been painted across the entire exterior of the Sunday school of my hometown synagogue. When I was younger, my rabbi led protests against Alabama inducting John G. Cromlin, a virulent anti-Semite, into the Alabama Military Hall of Fame. That rabbi, Rabbi Stephen Listfield, the rabbi who bar mitzvahed me, along with Rabbi David Arzwan, would leave Montgomery to become the rabbi of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Now, he is no longer there and was not the rabbi during the shooting. But it is a stark, direct connection that I had to that community that I did not realize until the shooting. In my entire life, I cannot recall a single time that I entered the synagogue without at least one armed police officer guarding the building. Now, WSFA, the NBC News affiliate, posted a video online. And before I describe the video, I want to say that I can tell you that the current congregation cannot fill half the sanctuary that they were in, the main sanctuary of the synagogue at Agoth Israel at Zahayim. It seats about 300 people. They may not even be able to fill a quarter of it, not even on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. I was there for the high holidays last year. The video posted shows more than 400 people of all walks of faith gathered singing this little light of mine. If you need proof of progress in humanity, this is your clearest evidence. The last story I wanted to mention was about the Muslim community in Pittsburgh who raised more than $200,000 in four days for the shooting victims. This article was written on October 31st. I do not know if they've raised more money since. I I cannot imagine that they haven't. But I know the day before they had reached $70,000, and the next day when this article was written, it had been up to 200000 I don't know what any current numbers are, but the Muslims Unite for Pittsburgh Synagogue, a crowdfunding campaign, raised $200,000. I believe he is an imam. His name is Wasi Muhammad. At an interfaith service, he gave a speech. Interfaith service for the victims, he gave a speech. He mentioned... At that point, they had only raised $70,000. And at the end of it, he says, we're here for whatever you need. His statement was, quote, if it's more money, let us know. If it's people outside your next service protecting you, let us know. We'll be there. If you need organizers on the ground to engage, we'll provide them. If you need anything at all, If you need food for the families, if you just need someone to come home to the grocery store because you don't feel safe in this city, we'll be there. And I'm sure everybody in the room would say the same thing. We're here for the community. He ended his statement by saying that this was to repay the Jewish community post 9-11 and Trump's election when hate crimes targeting Muslims in America spiked because the Jews were there for them. He didn't do this for headlines. He didn't do this just merely out of the goodness of his heart. He did this because he is a part of a community and this is what they do. Thank you, Wasi Muhammad. Jake and I are going to take a little break. We'll be back in... One second. we're back now Jake and I are going to be covering what I'm classifying as the bad stories and these are bad things directed specifically from the fallout of the Pittsburgh shooting then we will get into anti-semitism as a whole the first one is by Jonathan Greenblatt was in the New York Times the day after the shooting, October 28th. It's called When Hate Goes Mainstream. The Pittsburgh Massacre is only the latest, worst instance of rising anti-Semitism. Americans of conscience must now push back. This article, if you read it further down, it says... While the overall trend in anti-Semitic incidents has been a downward one, last year we saw the largest single-year increase since the ADL began its annual audit in 1979, a 57% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in 2017. These incidents include high-profile ones such as neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville chanting Jews will not replace us, physical assaults, vandalism, and attacks on Jewish institutions. Part of this sharp rise comes from the large increase in anti-Semitic incidents in grade schools and on college campuses. I want to say that again. Part of this sharp rise comes from the large increase in anti-Semitic incidents in grade schools and on college campuses, which nearly doubled for the second year in a row. The latest FBI statistics corroborate what our researchers found. A 5% increase in reported hate crimes, with more than half of faith-based crime, hate crimes, 53% against Jews. Of hate crimes reported, 53% against Jews in the country. Feeding this upsurge in hate is the toxic soup of anti-Semitism found online. According to a report that the ADL release just days before the Pittsburgh attack, far-right extremists and so-called alt-right have stepped up their efforts on social media in attack to attack and intimidate Jews, and especially Jewish journalists, in the run-up to the midterm elections. These radicals engaged in, quote, Twitter bombing of Jews, barraging our community with an estimated 5 million highly politicized and anti-Semitic tweets per day. A little bit further down says, Similarly emboldening is when anti-Semitism and hateful rhetoric is elevated or tolerated either through appropriating the anti-Semites rhetoric outright, quote, dog whistling to them, or allowing their hate to go unanswered. And this is what has accelerated over the past few years. Anti-Semitism is being normalized in public life. Further down. These incidents seem small, but add them together, nurture them with silence and acquiescence, and what grows is the poisonous weed of anti-Semitism. This must end. Towards the end of the article. More than 100 years ago, the lynching of a Jewish factory superintendent, Leo Frank, in Marietta, Georgia, shocked the Jewish community and the nation. It directly led to the formation of the ADL to fight anti-Semitism. The Pittsburgh Massacre should be a similar shock to us today, waking us up to the anti-Semitism and hate in our midst and reminding us all that the fight against them must be diligently fought at every turn by each and every one of us. I wanted to read off some other statistics from the ADL Between 2013 and 2014, there was a 21% increase in anti-Semitic incidents. 2015, 50% increase. 2016, it was somewhere around 35%. 2017, 57%. This did not start with Donald Trump. This rise may have been accelerated since The candidacy and his election, but it did not start with him. And I would also like to add that a lot of people are quoting this 57% rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic incidents a lot lately. This report was released in February. Where the hell were you? Where in the hell were you? Let me say this. This is a problem on both sides. And no one likes to say that. You like to believe in the cause you are fighting. You think you are righteous and the other side is evil. There is a rise on both sides. And both sides of the aisle are to blame here. So the remainder of this episode is going to be dedicated to showing you side by side. Just how we can and should do better and how no one's side is innocent in all of us. The next article I'm going to read is called the misguided rabbis of Twitter by rabbi David Wolpe tablet magazine, October 29th, 2018 tagline reads calls to excommunicate pro Trump Jews are not simply wrong. They're poison. <clears throat> rabbi Wolpe writes, my synagogue is on the West side of Los Angeles. On a rough guess, half of my congregants support Donald Trump. Many of those who do, but certainly not all, are from the Persian community. We have had frank discussions. I know they deplore many of the things he says, and I oppose much of what he does. They know I have criticized publicly and privately the inflammatory rhetoric of his presentations and warned them of its effects. They also know that we respect and listen to one another, and that I do not preach politics at them, but I do speak with them and learn from them. And that our relationship, in many cases, is not only one of affection, but of genuine love. So when I see major American Jewish figures tell me that my congregants are illegitimate, my blood boils a little bit. After the tragedy in Pittsburgh, perhaps I spend so much of my time at the bedside of the sick and dying, I expected that the first impulse of Jews in particular would be simply offer messages of sorrow and condolences. It's what I imagined that I would read when I opened A Prayer for Squirrel Hill and for American Jewry by Franklin Foyer, whom I know somewhat and have always respected, I'll get into his criticism of Franklin Foyer later. First, I wanted to play for you a clip from Rabbi David Wolpe from his sermon on Saturday, exactly one week after this the shooting.
2: Instead of yelling what the other side is doing wrong, try yelling at your own side. So, if you're a supporter of Trump, if you like the president, if you like what the Republican Party is saying, then I want you to think about saying to the president, Mr. President, the bullying rhetoric, the silences and sly encouragement, the going from the massacre to a rally and talking about your hair going from a massacre to a rally and talking about how the massacre interrupted the momentum of the midterms. And it's shameful that the president of the United States should not speak that way. If you're a supporter of the president, I want you to say to the president, listen, as a Jew, I don't want to argue immigration policy. You all have a different immigration policies, and God knows I don't know enough about the ramifications of policy to stand up here and lecture you, but one thing I do know. The Torah mentions the stranger 36 times. Says you should love the stranger. So even if you think not a single person should be let in from that caravan If you speak of them with hostility, as a mob, as invaders, as aliens, it's un-Jewish. It's un-Jewish. They're human beings. And believe me, a lot of Jews came to the United States for economic opportunity, not only because we were fleeing persecution. A lot of us. But I want the
0: President's
2: supporters to say this. because you have to be able to say what your side is doing. It's easy to say what the other side is doing wrong. And I want the Democratic Party, the left wing, the progressives to say what's going on in our college campuses is a disgrace that BDS turns into anti-Zionism, turns into anti-Semitism in a heartbeat. That Linda Sarsour and Louis Farrakhan shouldn't have a public voice when they speak the way they do. They should be anathematized and cast out. That when you speak about this country as fundamentally racist or when you call Republicans Nazis, that that is shameful and a disgrace and you should not do that. And I want Democrats to be saying that. Every day. Because we have a lot of many things in this country, but one thing we do not have a lot of is self-criticism. And if you can't criticize your own position, you have nothing to say. Yes, stay in your circle and speak to everybody who thinks like you. And dismiss every crude, cruel, bullying, mocking, deriding thing the president says is not important. Go ahead. Or stand on the other side and dismiss every anti-Semitic, shaded, hidden, cruel thing that he said by people who are fundamentally the enemies of our people and say, oh, they don't really have any influence. Go ahead. Stay in your circle and say But if you want to do what we did right before this sermon, if you want to sing together, you have to be able to talk to each other, which means sometimes saying, you know, you're right. My side does have that weakness, and it bothers me, and it concerns me, and I want to work on it, and I want to make it better. That's the first lesson of Pittsburgh. It is, I think, for a lot of people, the hardest lesson of Pittsburgh.
0: I could not agree with him more. Now, a prayer for Squirrel Hill and for American Jewry By Franklin Foyer. The Atlantic, October 27th, 2018. The day of the shooting. The day of the shooting. The Pittsburgh synagogue killings show that dormant hatred have reawakened. I'm going to read just part of it. In Donald Trump's abhorrence for globalism and in his inability to smack down David Duke, it was easy to hear the ominous chords of history to see how he was activating dormant hatreds with his conspiratorial tropes. But it was always easy to see how Jews, with their well-developed institutions and communal resources, were not the most vulnerable targets of Trump's racialism. I felt pride that so much of the organized Jewish community resisted the impulse to elevate its own problems above those of the more vulnerable I'm going to stop here for a second. Clearly, clearly Franklin Foyer has let his guard down. And this is why these incidents happen. We do not, as Jews in America, we have believed that we're safe here. And we cannot have that view. We we have to. We have to realize that it can happen anywhere and America is not immune from these types of events. The article goes on, Of course, this was not every corner of the Jewish community. After the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, Gary Cohn couldn't bring himself to resign from his job. After Squirrel Hill, Jared Kushner, and Sheldon Adelson will likely stand their ground. In response to this massacre, every synagogue will protect itself with great security, with more cameras, and more guards. They will do what is necessary to create a sense of safety, which will also invariably inhibit The sense of escaping from the secular world. The gunman committed a crime on Shabbat, and it will reverberate as a crime against Shabbat. Any strategy for enhancing the security of American Jewry should involve shunning Trump's Jewish enablers. Their money should be refused, their presence in synagogues not welcome. They have placed their community in danger. Go to hell, Franklin Foyer a line like that, you're blaming Jews for the murder of Jews. Now is the time to unify. Now is not the time to start finger-pointing within our own community where 2% of the nation's population, 2%, we make up 50% of the hate crime. This is partisan hackery and this is choosing politics over religion and it is shameful. It is shameful. The next... The next thing I'm going to say is um, this is a New York Times article on October 30th entitled Pittsburgh Unites in Grief Even as Trump's Visit Sparks Protests. The next one is Trump's Quiet Visit to a Grieving Pittsburgh Met with Hostility. That one was in the Washington Post. I'm not going to go into the details of these two stories, but let me say this. The headlines clearly point at the protests. This is the New York Times and the Washington Post. Communities are grieving, and you are pointing out that there are protesters. Now, the protesters are newsworthy. I would agree with that. But these are two major publications days after. The president is going down there to console those who are grieving. He is not the story. So, if you want to write a story about his visit, you can't say his quiet visit to a grieving Pittsburgh met with hostility. He went there quietly. He intended to go there quietly. Not everything is political, and we know why you're doing it. I know why you're doing it. You're doing it because the midterms are on Tuesday. You're politicizing the hell out of this, and it's shameful. Jake, what did you want? You wanted to say something?
1: No, I just. These stories are both so disingenuous and I don't know when we got to an era in our history where it's just okay for the media to write and then publish these completely disingenuous stories and expect us all to eat it out of their palms.
0: Here's another one I won't be quoting from. Some neo-Nazis lament the Pittsburgh massacre. It derails their efforts to be mainstream. This is by... Two people whose names I probably will mispronounce and the only two people who I will never be sorry for mispronouncing your names, Abigail Hoslaner and Abby Olheisner in the Washington Post on October 30th, 2018. Again, some neo-Nazis lament the Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Massacre. It derails their efforts to be mainstream. Who the hell, who in the hell thought this article was a good idea? I found this on the front page of their website, Washington, Post, Washington Post's website. Who in the hell thought we should write this story? We, we've been deplatforming people like Alex Jones. We've been shunning Maya, Milo Yiannopoulos so that these people don't have platforms. And you're straight giving it? Giving it to these neo-Nazis? Oh, you know, we, the, the massacre... It really hurt our efforts to be mainstream. What in the hell were you thinking in writing this?
1: Yeah, I mean, presumably this title was written with a little bit of venom behind it. It derails our efforts to be mainstream as in. The writers probably didn't think that they were aiding in their efforts to be mainstream by publishing them on the homepage of the Washington
0: Post. Couldn't have said that better. Thank you. I (laughs) did leave that part out. Yeah, they're upset about their efforts to be mainstream. Meanwhile, these writers are aiding in their ways to be. Yeah, good. Good point. Good point, Jake. Here's another one. Mark Landler, New York Times, November 1st. Trump finds support after Pittsburgh massacre, comma, from the Israeli government. Do not tell me that anti-Israel and anti-Zionism is not directly linked when the New York Times puts out a headline like this because, oh, oh, there was no one else there that agreed with Trump. There was no one else there. First off, Trump wasn't there to give support or was not there to get support. He was there to give it. Okay? So the fact that the Israeli government was supporting him at the time, I'm, I'm sorry, You're making him the story, and now you're making a direct link to Israel. That's repulsive. I'm going to read part of this story, even though I I really don't want to, but I'm going to. About midway down, the slaughter in Pittsburgh had already laid bare fissures between Israel and American Jews after Israel's Ashkenazi chief rabbi refused to refer to the Tree of Life synagogue as a synagogue because it is conservative, non-Orthodox branch of Judaism not recognized by religious authorities in Israel. Let me stop there for a second. Yeah, it was wrong of the chief rabbi in Israel to do that, but that's not what he did. That's not what he said directly. He said that it's not, they they asked him to call it a synagogue. He said he does not faithfully consider it a synagogue. That's because he's Orthodox and the synagogue is conservative. The nuance there is pretty clear he also went on to say, and if you read the translation, if you read it in the original Hebrew, but then read the translation afterwards, he said, "But these people are Jews, and they were there to pray." He did not consider it a synagogue because it wasn't orthodox, and it's wrong, and it's a wrong thing to say at the time. But he is an orthodox rabbi, so that there's one. But the next, the next part of this article reads, "But the discord over." The presidential visit, a time-honored ritual in the aftermath of such a tragedy, underscores how wide the gulf has become at a time when the White House and the Israeli government are in lockstep on every major issue, yet as a majority of American Jews voted against the president. You're now saying that American Jews don't agree with Israel. You're now saying... That American Jews and Israeli government are not in lockstep, but, American Jew, but the Israeli government and Trump are in lockstep. Now, the reason I say this is Jews were killed in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. What in the hell does Israel have to do with it? You brought them into this, Mark Landler. You brought them into this. Why? Why was it necessary to bring up Israel right now? Perhaps it's an anti-Israel agenda. I don't know. I don't know what your thought process behind writing this article is, but you're the one that's injecting Israel into this. This has absolutely nothing to do with Israel except for the fact that they were there with Trump. The ambassador, Ron Dermer, Israel's ambassador to the United States, was there with Trump in Pittsburgh.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like political cheap shots to me, and... What's more astonishing is that it's not just Mark Landler who had this insidious notion that it was a proper time to drag Israel into the national conversation. It was the editorial board at the New York Times who published the story. So like there was a group of people sitting around a conference table, presumably, who all thought this was a good idea. I don't know how these things just it it seems like the it, it seems like the editorial standards over at the New York Times is similar to a colander.
0: Yeah. One is called, the next article is called The Many Faces of Jew Hatred. Anti-Semitism is a politics of misdirected blame. Today, its the most frequent target is the state of Israel. This is by Ruth Weiss. It was in the Wall Street Journal on October 31st. Quote, in the wake of the shooting in Pittsburgh, a volley of voices called for more of this and that, armed guards or gun control, barring the doors of synagogues, policing of fringe web platforms or resources for mental health. While President Trump denounced the shooting as, quote, an evil anti-Semitic attack and visited the grieving community, a sector of the media blamed the president for the incident, as it does for everything else. It was politics as usual. But instead of prompting a serious inquiry into the ideology that fuels the murder of Jews, the atrocities seem to be reinforcing a misconception that it can only worsen the problem. Anti-Semitism is not synonymous with Hitlerism, the only form of anti-Semitism that has gone down in military defeat. Anti-Semitism is a politics of misdirected blame, and the Americans must be sure to avoid its trap. I could not agree with her more. Yeah, I'm with you there. This next one, this is the last bad story before I go side by side, is called is it safe to be Jewish in New York? And this is by Genia Belafonte New York Times, October 31st She writes a bit further down But in fact, anti-Semitism was already quietly on the rise For several years now expressions of anti-Jewish sentiment have made up the preponderance of hate crime complaints in the city She's speaking of New York Contrary to what are surely the prevailing assumptions anti-Semitic incidents have constituted half of the hate crimes in New York this year, according to the police department. To put that figure into context, there have been four times as many crimes motivated by bias against Jews, 142 in all, than there have been against blacks. Four times. Hate crimes against Jews have outnumbered hate crimes targeting... The transgender people by a factor of 20. A little further down. If anti-Semitism bypasses consideration as a serious problem in New York, it is to some extent because it refuses to conform to an easy narrative with a single ideological enemy. During the past 22 months, not one person caught or identified as the aggressor in an anti-Semitic hate crime has been associated with a far right-wing group Mark Molinari, the the commanding officer of the police department's hate crimes task force, told me. That is the New York Times. That is the New York Times saying if anti-Semitism bypasses consideration as a serious problem in New York, that is the New York Times saying that the New York Times did not report on this story because they couldn't point the proper finger when the story should have been the Finger-pointing goes in all directions. There's one more part I want to read out of this. It is, in fact, it is the varied backgrounds of people who commit hate crimes in the city that make combating and talking about anti-Semitism in New York much harder. A little bit further down, when a Hasidic man or woman is attacked by anyone in New York City, mainstream progressive advocacy groups do not typically send out emails calling for concern and fellowship and candlelight vigils in Union Square as they often do with when individuals are harmed in New York because of their race or ethnicity or how they identify in terms of gender or sexual orientation. That is the New York Times telling us in vaguely written words, again, that the pub that the paper doesn't cover, and progressive advocacy groups do not assist stopping the spate of anti-Semitism because it is politically inconvenient. Here's what Ben Shapiro had to say. That's Ben Shapiro of the Daily Wire. He's a Fairly mainstream conservative commentator. And some of you don't like him. And I understand why you don't from his conservative standpoint. But he is an Orthodox Jew. He is very smart. And I do not apologize for quoting him right now. I don't apologize for mentioning him in our show ever, which we have done in the past. Here's what, here's what Shapiro had to say. In other words... Jews don't fit into the intersectional classification necessary in order to receive narrative attention from either the mainstream media or from progressive groups. Orthodox Jews, who are often targets of anti-Semitic attacks, aren't seen as victims. Their victimizers, who aren't conservatives and who can't be linked with conservatives, aren't seen as victimizers. There's a reason Al Sharpton, who helped initiate a riot against Orthodox Jews in Crown Heights in 1991 has a show on on MSNBC where he opines about President Trump's linkages to white supremacist anti-Semitism. Certain types of anti-Semitism are worthy of note. Others aren't. And those on the left often decide which is which and with simple reference to a preferred narrative in which Jews are part of a privileged class unless they are victimized by white supremacists.
1: Well, I thought that this might be a, an appropriate time to bring up Barry Weiss's interview with Bill Maher on his show last night, or two nights ago, Friday. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to just dovetail off what you were just saying, and a part of the conversation that I thought was so interesting was when Bill Maher made a point of saying that anti-Semitism is a breed all of its own. It's a It's a breed of hatred that, shares no stripes with other types uh, anti-black violence anti-trans violence so i i think that this really illuminates that in that there's a whole 50% ostensibly swath of violence against Jews that we're ignoring because it's not politically convenient and i i think that this really illustrates how this type of hatred knows no political stripe and no and no, crosses all types of boundaries and I thought that that was a really interesting piece of their conversation. And it it also just shows that it, it's so steeped in some kind of reptilian part of people's brains, anti-Semitism that it, it outpaces hate crimes against blacks by what was a factor of four and then hate crimes against, uh, LGBT communities think, by a factor of I think, 20. I
0: think, I think it was just transgender. Uh,
1: communities. Uh, uh That's astonishing. I mean, that literally uh,
0: took the breath out of me when you were reading that. Now that you you brought that up, actually, there is something I want to say that I haven't addressed head on yet. And this is the trope of your pain is our pain. Mm. No, it is not. I'm sorry, but no, it is not. You're not hurting like I'm hurting. You're not hurting like we are hurting. I'm going to read a tweet from former President Barack Obama the night of the shooting he said we grieve for the americans murdered in pittsburgh all of us have to fight the rise of anti-semitism and hateful rhetoric rhetoric against those who look love or pray differently and to stop making it so easy for those who want to harm the innocent to get their hands on a gun that's barack obama equating anti-semitism to racism anti-semitism to homophobia anti-semitism to any other religious persecution. And it's not just him, and it's not just the left, because Kellyanne Conway also said that this is an attack on all religions. No, it is not. To quote what Barry Weiss said in that interview Jake just mentioned, she said, anti-Semitism is not just a prejudice, it is a conspiracy theory. That's what makes it different. Everyone everywhere on both sides of the aisle blame Jews. If there's hatred somewhere, if anyone hates one person for one thing, they also hate the Jews. It's universal, and it always has been. On the right, they say globalists, enemies of the people. On the left, they say Israel. And Israel has turned into anti-Zionism, and anti-Zionism has turned into anti-Semitism. And if you don't believe that, I will get into it further later. But one thing that Bill Maher said in that interview is he said that he does not understand anti-Semitism and how... It, no one ever seems to be satisfied with what the Jews are doing. And one of the things he said was, after the Holocaust, he's heard from vile people, heard them say things like, the Jews were so weak that they went to their slaughter. They marched to their slaughter. Then they got Israel. And Israel became strong. And they didn't like that either. Just leave us the hell alone. That's, that's really all we want. Stop blaming us for your problems. Stop slaughtering our people in mass. Damn, leave it to L. Jakey.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, sort of just adding to this idea that anti Semitism is different because it's a conspiracy. I thought another really interesting part of that interview was when Mar was mentioning how when the rioters in Charlottesville were carrying their tiki torches and yelling, Jews will not replace us they weren't speaking about Jews replacing them personally like as in one of those white supremacists would be replaced with a Jew they were speaking about the fact that they believed the Jews ran the government and were going to replace them with foreigners or immigrants or brown or black people
0: they were going to replace the white working class with
1: yeah brown or black people yeah right but like I up to up till that interview when I was listening to that I just assumed that they were saying Jews will not replace us as in we are a Christian nation and we're not going to be overrun by Jews. That that was what they were saying was so much more insidious and devious. It was so much more conspiratorial. What they were saying was that no, the Jews aren't going to come and repopulate the America with Jews. They're going to replace us with black and brown people. And that's that just demonstrates how anti-Semitism crosses into every other conspiracy. Uh, hatred of of others, xenophobia, uh, hate crimes against blacks. That's why it's different. Is that lurking in the background of every other type of prejudice is this underlying current of anti-Semitism. And that's why it's different. It's so universal.
0: I'm about to start with pointing out anti-Semitism on both sides. But I want to start with reading a statement from Trump. This is what he said right after the shooting. This is right after. He said... The scourge of anti-Semitism cannot be ignored, cannot be tolerated, and it cannot be allowed to continue. We can't allow it to continue. It must be confronted and condemned everywhere it rears its very ugly head. We must stand with our Jewish brothers and sisters to defeat anti-Semitism and to vanquish the forces of hate. That is Trump saying directly on the topic of anti-Semitism in his statement. Directly. And I commend him and thank you, Mr. President. Now, now I'm going to get into bad Trump. Let's start with this. Trump winked and nodded at the alt-right between 2015 and 2017. We all saw him do it. We all saw him not say things directly anti-Semitic, but he definitely brushed up on them. We know it. We know he did it. We watched him do it. And it's shameful and he has not apologized for it. Some of these things... He didn't condemn David Duke on CNN. We all saw it. We all saw them ask him about it and his hesitation to condemn David Duke. Another one, he didn't condemn the alt-right attacks on reporter Julia Jaffe. He hired Steve Bannon to come into the White House to be a chief strategist. The statements he made to the alt-right, after Charlottesville, there's good people on both sides. We heard him say it. We heard him say it, and it's shameful. And it provided aid and comfort to members of the alt-right. I think nearly a month into his first term, his only term so far as president, he omitted Jews on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. When he was asked about it, when the administration was asked about it, they said they did it on purpose because more than just the Jews died there. That is shameful. and That is a direct, we've been hearing a lot of dog whistle language. That is a direct, direct dog whistle to anti-Semites. What has he done since the shooting? Since that first statement, which was miraculous, which was magnificent. That was a great statement to make right out the gate. What has he done? You heard the clip we played for you from Rabbi David Wolp. He went from the massacre, from the scene of the massacre, to a campaign rally and talked about his hair. He went from the massacre to a campaign rally and talked about how it was interrupting the midterms and ruining his momentum and that's shameful that is shameful it's abhorrent he also said he tweeted out on october 31st yesterday in pittsburgh i was really impressed with congressman keith rothfuss far more than any other local political figure his sincere level of compassion grief and sorrow for the events that took place was in its own way very inspiring. That's a great message. That's a great message. And if he would have ended the tweet there, it would have been great. But he didn't. He said, vote for Keith. He turned it into a campaign message. Disgusting. The same day, he tweeted out, Melania and I were treated very nicely yesterday in Pittsburgh. The office of the president was shown great respect on a very sad and solemn day. We were treated so warmly. Small protest, small protest, was not seen by us, staged far away. The fake news stories were just the opposite, disgraceful. It is not his place. It is not, it's not appropriate for him to comment about how great he was treated in Pittsburgh. He was not there to be treated great. He was there to treat them great. He was there to comfort them and not have him be comforted. He's not the story. You're not the story, Mr. President. This is it's it's just vile. It's just vile. Who cares? Who cares what the news are reporting? And I get it. I get why you do this. You have an impulse to punch back at anyone that's punching at you. That's actually mainly why I don't think the president is anti-Semitic. It's because when he says things. When he does things, he's really, he just has this guttural instinct to take a swing at anybody that's taking a swing at him, regardless of the ramifications. But I haven't seen him say anything directly anti-Semitic. These statements are terrible. They're terrible. But there's an excuse that's being made on the right that I cannot agree with, because we need to look deeper. When accusing someone of anti-Semitism, we need to look deeper, and the excuse for Trump coming from the right is he can't be anti-Semitic. What about his family? He has a son-in-law that's Jewish, Orthodox Jewish. He has a daughter that is converted to Orthodox Judaism. He has grandchildren that are Orthodox Jews. How can he be anti-Semitic? How can he hate his grandchildren? How can he hate his children? How can he hate his son-in-law? I don't like this comparison because I, I think it's a false equivalency, but for some reason, people understand hate when it comes at other denominations of race, religion, creed that they don't understand in anti-Semitism. So let me put it to you in this these terms. If a racist had a daughter that married a black man, if a white racist had a daughter that married a black man, do you think his racism would suddenly evaporate? It is possible to have a racist son-in-law. It's possible to have a daughter married to a black man. It's possible to have possible to have mixed-race grandchildren and not be entirely thrilled about it and actually, to some point, hate them. The same is true of anti-Semitism. The same is true of having Jewish grandchildren, of having Jewish children, of having Jewish sons and daughters-in-law. So stop making that excuse. It's also important for me to point out here I didn't vote for him. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't. I voted for Hillary. And I will never vote for Hillary Clinton again for anything. I don't care what she's running for. I will never vote for her again. I will never support any organization. Both she and Bill support because former President Bill Clinton and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton sat on stage On a dais with Louis Farrakhan at Aretha Franklin's funeral. Now, the excuse that I've heard is, it's a funeral. How can you decide who is invited? You can't fault him for going. It's just a funeral. Yada, yada, yada. If Trump had shown up at a funeral and Richard Spencer was sitting on a dais, someone who's anti-semitism does not reach the level of Louis Farrakhan. And the only thing I regret about saying that is that I might have accidentally just said something nice about Richard Spencer. But if Trump sat on a dais with Richard Spencer, everyone would lose their minds. This is the left not caring. This is the left ignoring. And it's shameful. It is shameful. Here's why. A couple weeks ago, we reported on Louis Farrakhan releasing a tweet linked to a video where he says, quote, I'm not anti-Semite, I'm anti-termite. Lovely. Here's more things he said. Quote, Satanic Jews have infected the whole world with poison and deceit. Quote, the Jews have control over the agencies of government. When you want something in this world, the Jew holds the door. Quote, Jews were responsible for all this filth and and degenerate behavior that Hollywood is putting out, turning men into women and women into men. White folks are going down, and Satan is going down, and Farrakhan, by God's grace, has pulled a cover off the Satanic Jew, and I'm here to say your time is up. Your world is through. You good Jews better separate because the, sig- the satanic ones will take you to hell with them because that's where they are headed. Quote, It is now becoming apparent that there were many Israeli and Zionist Jews in key roles in the 9-11 attacks. Israelis had foreknowledge of the attacks. We know that many Jews received a text message Not to come to work on September 11th. He has also said, in repeated, for national televised audiences, his description of Hitler as, quote, a very good man. A very good man. Quote, the false Jew will lead you to filth and indecency. That's who runs show business. That's who runs the record industry. That's who runs television. He said, quote, White people running Mexico are Mexican Jews. He said, quote, The Jews have been so bad at politics they lost half their population in the Holocaust. They thought they could trust Hitler and they helped him get the Third Reich on the road. That's him blaming Jews for their own slaughter in the Holocaust. He said, quote, German Jews financed Hitler right here in America. International bankers financed Hitler, and poor Jews died while big Jews were at the root of what you call the Holocaust. That's him denying the Holocaust. Little Jews died while big Jews made money. Little Jews being turned into soap while big Jews washed themselves with it. Jews were playing violin, Jews playing music, while other Jews marching into the gas chambers. Farrakhan said, quote, they, meaning Israel, wouldn't allow me to go to Jerusalem. If I had gone, they might have stoned me. I didn't want to repeat history. I know they stoned Jesus. I know they've killed the prophets of God there. That's Farrakhan blaming us for the death of Jesus, not his Lord and Savior. That's Louis Farrakhan on the left. That is Louis Farrakhan from the left.
1: Yeah, and I I want to make a notation right here to keep Farrakhan in mind, because while I think a lot of people listening to this show probably haven't heard of Louis Farrakhan, uh, his influence is definitely far-reaching, and it's very, very, very much on the mainstream of the political left. So keep that in mind, because we are going to be bringing up Farrakhan again and again while we go through incidences of just open embrace of anti-Semitism on the political left.
0: The next story is Jewish groups from both parties slam offensive decision to have messianic Jewish minister at Pence event. Is by Kate Sullivan and Daniel Burke at uh, at CNN, October 31st. An official in Pence's office said in a statement, quote, the speaker was invited by Lena Epstein, the candidate the VP was there supporting. We often have prayers at the beginning of the events that aren't an endorsement of any particular faith. Epstein, who is Jewish, is running to represent Michigan's 11th congressional district. I do not know who's running against her. I do not know what their platform is. But allow me to say this. I wholeheartedly support her opponent. I wholeheartedly endorse her opponent. Because this is shameful. Now, before, I didn't know who exactly invited him. So I had a conversation with somebody and I said, basically, if Pence invited this messianic quote rabbi, who, by the way, isn't a messianic rabbi anymore because he was defrocked, he's not even good enough for them, or did the candidate, because if Pence invited him, it's bad. If the candidate, a Jewish woman invited him, there's definitely an argument to be made that it's worse, that she should have known. If Pence did it, he deserves all of the insensitive, tone deaf criticism he is getting. If Pence didn't do it, he still should have had someone check on who was sharing the stage with and should have known better. Now, the point I just made was Hillary Clinton sat on stage with Farrakhan. These people have handlers, these people can get the information of who they're about to share a stage with. Here's why this is incredibly offensive. Messianic Judaism, the mainstream term for them is Jews for Jesus. They're not Jews. They're not recognized as Jews. One of the fundamental differences between Judaism and Christianity is the thought of Jesus as the Messiah. Jews do not believe a Messiah has come because when the Messiah comes, there will be peace on earth. Christians believe that Jesus was the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah will be similar to that of the Jewish First coming, I guess you would call it. That is the fundamental difference between Judaism and Christianity. Messianic Jews have accepted Jesus as the first coming of the Messiah. That means, by definition, they're not Jews. So, why do Jews for Jesus exist? I don't know. I don't know why they do. But I can tell you this they are leeches, they are parasites. These people pray, and by pray I mean P-R-E-Y, on Jews and on Christians who are struggling with their faith. And they pull them into their temples, and they latch onto them, and they funnel their money away. They're the Scientology of the Abrahamic religions. I have a friend who was in Paris not too long ago, and he went to the Louvre. And at the Louvre he was approached by a Messianic Jew, a Jew for Jesus. My friend is Jewish. The Messianic Jew stalked him for four and a half hours trying to convince him to convert. Four and a half hours. These are not nice people like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons who come door to door to spread the good word of Jesus. And if you don't wish to talk to them, they say, thank you, they hand you a pamphlet, and they leave. I'm fine with that. That's in some ways, you as a Jew, I know that their heart is in the right place. Stalking my friend for four and a half hours is repugnant. It is awful. It is these people are terrible and they should be cast out. And by the way, again, this so-called rabbi had been defrocked by Messianic Jews. He wasn't good enough for them. So, Lena Epstein of Michigan's 11th Congressional District, I hope you lose. Again, because we only understand race and we don't understand anti-Semitism in this country, inviting a Messianic Jewish rabbi to come and perform and give a prayer at a campaign rally is equivalent to inviting someone to perform a minstrel show at a black power parade. That's on the right. Let's swing back to the left. Now, I just bashed a vice president's decision to go to a campaign rally. There is no equivalent to that on the left, unless we speak of a former vice president. But I will say this. So I'm going to mention a few people right now. One of them is the number two at the DNC, Keith Ellison. The others are the leaders of the Women's March. This is an article entitled Keith Ellison Anti Semitism Controversy Explained by Joseph N. Dolston, Jerusalem Post, February 9th, 2017. If you read the article a little further down, it says Before he became the first Muslim elected to Congress in 2006, Ellison apologized for his involvement with the Nation of Islam and denounced the group. Quote, I have long since distanced myself from and rejected the Nation of Islam due to its propagation of bigoted and anti-Semitic statements and actions of the Nation of Islam, Louis Farrakhan, and Khalid Muhammad. Khalid Muhammad was Louis Farrakhan's now late assistant. He wrote in a two-page letter to the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas in May 2006 after winning the Democratic primary. A little bit further down, though Ellison has rejected the movement of boycott, sanction, and divestment... Now, the proper arrangement of those were boycott, divest, and sanctions, or more commonly known as the BDS movement, which I'll get to later, from Israel, and expressed support for the two-state solution. He sought to accommodate a more sympathetic reading of the UN's Goldstone Report on the 2009 Gaza War that Israel, Jewish groups, and most of Congress rejected as a one-sided attack on Israel. The congressman also voted against funding Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system in 2014. Then in December, on short audio recording from a 2010 private fundraiser, Ellison said that the American foreign policy is, quote, governed by Israeli interests. A little bit further down. According to Mother Jones, tensions were high between black and Jewish students in the late 1980s when the University of Minnesota's Africana Student Cultural Center sponsored speeches by Farrakhan and Kwame Tour, a black power activist formerly known as Stokely Carmichael. The university organized events meant to improve relations between the groups. Ellison reportedly was respectful to Jewish students at those events, but he also made troubling statements two Jewish attendees told Mother Jones. Now these are allegations. They have not been proven. And he has since denied them. Ellison could be deferential at these meetings. He thanked Jewish students for sticking up for black students' rights to hold controversial campus speakers, even if they had denounced those speakers, and suggested working together on common political causes. But he also insisted the charges that Tour was racist were unfounded. Michael Olnick a Jewish student who clashed with Ellison and who was the opinions editor at the Minnesota Daily, the student newspaper, recalled Ellison maintaining that an oppressed group could not be racist towards Jews because Jews themselves were oppressors. Quote, European white Jews are trying to oppress minorities all over the world. Olenek remembers Ellison arguing. Keith would go on all the time about, quote, Jewish slave traders. Another Jewish student active in progressive politics, recalled Ellison, Ellison's incredulous response to controversy over Zionism. Quote, what are you afraid of, Ellison asked. Do you think black nationalists are going to get power and hurt Jews? Now, he said that the only workings he had with the Nation of Islam was doing the Million Man March in 1995. Here's a part of the article that says different. Two organizers who worked with him at the time, told me that they believed Ellison had been a member of the nation. At community meetings, he, even sh- he was even known to show up in nation's signature bow tie accompanied by dark-suited members of the Fruit of Islam Nation Security Wing. It's the Nation of Islam Security Wing. One former leader of the group's Twin Cities chapter, referred to as a study group, told Mother Jones that Ellison had been a member of the Nation of Islam. Minister James Muhammad, who in the 1990s led the Nation of Islam's Twin Cities study group, confirms that Ellison served for several years as the local group's chief of protocol, acting as a liaison between Muhammad and members of the community. He was a, quote, trusted member of our inner circle, says Muhammad, who is no longer active in the Nation of Islam. Ellison regularly attended meetings and sometimes spoke in Muhammad's stead when the leader was absent. Here's another article. Jewish groups urged resignation of Representative Keith Ellison over ties to Louis Farrakhan. This is by Sean Savage in the Cleveland Jewish News, February 16, 2018. Most Jewish groups, including the leading organization representing Jewish Democrats, are strongly criticizing Representative Keith Ellison, Democrat of Minnesota, over his previously undisclosed contact with Reverend Louis Farrakhan, head of the anti-Semitic political and religious movement, the Nation of Islam. Some Jewish leaders are urging Ellison to step down as the deputy chairman of the Democratic Party. When Ellison first ran for Congress in 2006, he insisted he had severed all ties with Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, which Ellison had belonged to in the 1990s. Similarly, when he ran... For chairman of the Democratic Party in 2016, he reiterated that he had long ago distanced himself from Farrakhan, but a series of reports from the Wall Street Journal and the Daily Caller in recent days revealed that Ellison had participated in at least three meetings with Farrakhan since entering Congress. The Wall Street Journal reported February 8th that Ellison and Farrakhan both took part in a private dinner meeting in September 2013, between Iranian President Hassan Rouhani and several dozen prominent American Muslims. Four days later, Ellison responded that he participated in the meeting to seek the release of a U.S. citizen being held in Iran. Ellison did not mention Farrakhan, but appeared to allude to him when he stated, quote, I I didn't know in advance who else would be there and my decision to attend was not an endorsement of the political views of other attendees, and it wouldn't be until years later that it was discovered that Louis Farrakhan was the one who was there. The controversy took a new turn on February 13, 2018, when the Daily Caller reported that Ellison had taken part in at least two other meetings with Farrakhan since becoming a member of Congress, one of which took place in Farrakhan's hotel room. Ellison has not yet responded to the evidence, including a videotape of the additional meetings. That's the number two. The number two at the DNC. The next part is everything you need to know about anti-Semitism in the Women's March movement. Now let me start by saying the Women's March was a great thing. It happened the day after the inauguration and he had Trump had clearly said some vile things in his past about women, and this is women standing up and saying in one common voice that it was not okay. And then the leaders of the Women's March movement after and before, but I'm not sure it was clear who their leaders were at that march, have gone on to consistently not been a friend to the Jews. This article is in Alma Magazine. It is entitled Everything You Need to Know About Anti-Semitism in the Women's March Movement. It's by Emily Burek. First, after the march, the organization pivoted. Their unity principles read, We believe that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. We must create a society in which women, including black women, native women, poor women, immigrant women, disabled women, Muslim women, lesbian, queer, and trans women, are free and able to care and care for and nurture their families, however they are formed in a safe and healthy environment free from structural impediments. This is a good sentiment. It's a great sentiment. Except for one thing. Who did they forget? Who do they forget to mention? The Jews. Nowhere are Jews mentioned. As Lily Herman writes in Refinery twenty nine, quote, despite all the talk about intersectionality. Many of these people think it's perfectly acceptable to leave out Judaism, often for reasons that have nothing to do with the faith itself or reasons why Jews have been brutalized for centuries. The next one is the International Women's Strike. At one point, they mentioned anti-racist and anti-imperialist feminism and said that in in a statement at the end said, quote, justice for Palestine are for us the beating heart of the new feminist movement. Which raised a lot of questions. Why does justice for Palestine look like? What does justice for Palestine look like? Does it mean the end to the state of Israel? Again, this is the writer of this article in Alma Magazine saying, Again, not saying this is anti-Semitic, but anti-Zionism slips very, very quickly into anti-Semitism. And Israel was the only country singled out in the charter. Emily Shire wrote an op-ed. For the New York Times asking, quote, Does feminism have room for Zionists? Shire writes, I find it troubling that embracing such a view is considered an essential part of an event that is supposed to unite feminists. I am happy to debate Middle East politics or listen to critiques of Israel policies, but why should criticism of Israel be key to feminism in 2017? In a response, Linda Sarsour, one of the leaders of the Women's March, gave to the, the publication, The Nation, she said, quote, You either stand up for the rights of all women, including Palestinians, or none. There's just no way around it, which doesn't quite answer the question. But she emphasizes that you cannot be Zionist and feminist. Now, remember, Zionism is simply defined as the belief that the state of Israel should exist. The next is the Dyke March 2017, this event took place in Chicago. The Women's March was often linked to the Dyke March in online discords, which is why it's included on this list. The article reads, quote, On June 24th, around 1,500 people marched in Chicago in support of LGBTQ rights. As the Windy City Times reported, the Dyke March Collective ejected three people carrying Jewish pride flags, a rainbow flag with the Star of David in the center. The three women, Laurel Greyer Eleanor Shoshani Anderson and Ellie Otra repeatedly explained they were there celebrating queer, their queer Jewish identities. Grauer explained, It was a flag for my congregation which celebrates my queer Jewish identity which I have done for over a decade marching in the Dyke March with the same flag. Anderson reiterated, in an interview with the Daily Beast, saying, quote, I just said, I'm here as a Jew. I'm here as a Jew. Similarly, Otra wrote on Facebook, quote, I wanted to be in public as a gay Jew of Persian and German heritage. Nothing more, nothing less. So I made a shirt that said, Proud Jewish Dyke, and hoisted a, a big Jewish pride flag, a rainbow flag with a Star of David in the center the centuries-old symbol of the Jewish people. But the Dyke march organizers took their Jewish pride flags as Israeli flags and asked them to leave. Otra further explained, I was thrown out of the Dyke march for being Jewish. And yes, there were other Jews there, visible ones even, who weren't accosted, who had fun even. And yes, Israel exists in a complicated way. But in this case, it doesn't matter what Israel does or doesn't do. This was about being Jewish in public, and I was thrown out for being Jewish, for being in the wrong kind of, for being the wrong kind of Jew, the kind of Jew who shows up with a big Jewish star on a flag.
1: Can I just jump in for a second? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I really want to drive a couple points home. First and foremost is that in the Women's March mission statement, they equate the Modern feminist with being pro Palestine, that they basically say that there's no room in the modern feminist movement without being a pro Palestinian feminist. And second most, I want to point out in relation to this, uh, the Dyke March, is that her rabbi and her congregation at her synagogue specifically made that flag for her. Her congregation was totally willing to rally around her, and she went out into this great show of—this uh, great expression of individuality and being a lesbian and being also a Jew, and that was too much for the leaders of the Women's March to stomach.
0: Well, more for the leaders of the Chicago Dyke March, which was linked to the Women's March.
1: Right. They got all their funding from the Women's but, March. Yeah.
0: But the Women's March did not condemn them kicking their, them out.
1: I. Okay
0: that's I, w- I just wanted to make that clear that that the women's march was not directly in charge but they did not rectify these actions
1: right i mean these actions are the logical conclusion of the message they spread
0: i agree next charlottesville on october 11th and 12th 2017 neo nazis convened on charlottesville as the washington post reports reported quote white nationalists brandished torches and chanted anti-Semitic and Nazi slogans, including the blood and soil an English rendering of the Nazi Blut and Boden and Jews will not replace us, which we mentioned earlier, all crafted to cast Jews as foreign interlopers who need to be expunged. The attendees proudly displayed giant swastikas and wore short shirts emblazoned with quotes from Adolf Hitler. One banner read, Jews are Satan's children. The Atlantic wrote, the durability of anti-Semitic tropes and the ease with which they slide into all displays of bigotry is a chilling reminder that hatred of our time rhyme with history and are easily channeled through timeless anti-Semitic canards. The Alma article reads, why is this relevant to the women's march? They consistently aren't addressing anti-Semitism even as it becomes an even bigger issue in the U.S. and around the world. For a movement that hails its inclusion and intersectionality that somehow doesn't include Jews. In their nine Instagrams, their biggest platform, around Charlottesville, a single one mentions Jews. None mention anti-Semitism. We shouldn't be searching and searching for an acknowledgement of Jews and anti-Semitism when we know it's real and it's happening, especially in the wake of Charlottesville. Refusing to denounce Farrakhan. In an Instagram post from May 2017, Tamika Mallory calls Louis Farrakhan the greatest of all time. The post reads on Instagram, Thank God this man is still alive and doing well. He is definitely the GOAT, which is an acronym for the greatest of all time. Happy birthday, at Lewis Farrakhan. Tamika Mallory is not alone in her support for Farrakhan. Carmen Perez, another leader of the Women's March, has posted about him, praisingly, writing, There are many times when I sit with elders or inspirational individuals where I think, I just wish I could package this and share this moment with others. Similarly, Linda Sarsour, along with Carmen Perez and Tamika Mallory, Participated in Farrakhan's 2015 rally Hashtag justice or else Now, in response Many called on Women's March leaders to denounce Farrakhan Instead, the four co-chairs Doubled down Refusing to denounce him Tamika Mallory tweeted If your leader does not have the same enemies as Jesus They may not be the leader This is clearly an anti-Semitic dog whistle Jews are the enemies of Jesus and Christianity. That's what she was saying. Someone tweeted at Tamika Mallory asking, just wondering if bigotry is only a problem when aimed at black or brown people. Why do you support Farrakhan? Hate speech towards Jews is great. Minister Kirsten John Foy jumped in and responded, why do you support Netanyahu? The rest of the exchange reads, from the original poster, Fu, Netanyahu has nothing to do with Farrakhan's hate speech against Jews in the United States. She chose to make herself the leader of a women's march. So supporting someone who engages in hate speech in the U.S. is a problem. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Minister Kirsten John Foy responded. Oh, now F me. Okay. Good day to you, ma'am. I'll be praying that you be loosed from bigotry and privilege and hubris. Be careful how you treat people today. You've got wicked spirit laying in your, upon your heart. I pray them bound and cast from you by, in all caps, the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Linda Sarsour responded, Brother Minister Foy, you are too blessed to be stressed. You are a man walking the path towards justice and standing up for the most marginalized. Stay strong and stay focused. Turning back to the Refinery29 article, quote, This also doesn't even begin to describe the erasure of Jews of color from practically every American narrative. As Dion Alston noted, there are black Jews who are more directly impacted by Farrakhan's words, not to mention black members of the LGBTQ community, and other groups who've been targeted by the Nation of Islam leader in the past. What do the Women's March leaders say to them?
1: I think it's important to note and highlight while we're going through all this why this is so important to talk about, and part of that is just because when, even if you publicly denounce somebody like Farrakhan, but still find common cause with them, that, the ideology is so infectious that it it leaches out into policymaking and it, it, it trickles down to even people who uh, are not necessarily political figures, but go out and vote or volunteer. And this is an example from Friday. So two days ago, we're recording this on Sunday uh, that just came out, which is a story about a young man who lives in New York city and he was working on the Obama campaign and he went and vandalized, a shul in brooklyn and then he also set fire to seven other shuls and yeshivas in the greater new york metropolitan area and this is explicit but i do want to read some of the graffiti that he wrote on the wall of the synagogue in brooklyn because it shows you how this ideology us versus them them being the jewish people uh is has the ability to proliferate and, and spread itself. So here's what he wrote on the wall of a synagogue in Brooklyn. Quote, A civil war is here. Mexicans, Latin Americans, Caribbeans, and Muslims versus Jew nigger pigs. He wrote that on the wall of a synagogue about a week from the day that 11 Jews were killed in Pittsburgh. And this is a young guy that thought he was doing the right thing by working on the Obama campaign. So he holds these two values and virtues in tandem. That's why it's so important that people who have massive influence, such as Keith Ellison, such as Linda Sarsour, who was able to get a quarter million people in Washington, D.C., The day after the inauguration, she has that much reach, not to mention millions of other people across America holding similar rallies. And she's willing to cozy up to a guy like Louis Farrakhan. That's why this is so important. How long until we have to have more Jewish people die? How long? Because it's going to happen again. That's all I have to
0: add. Rabbi Avram Lotech posted a story. This is directly to the point about black Jews. Avram M- Melotech, Rabbi Avram Lotech posted a story on Facebook that was removed. Facebook has since apologized for removing the story. Here's a glimpse into my evening commute. You a Jew, man. I was asked on a crowded uptown B train headed home. "'I am, brother,' I replied. "'You're a real Jew, man,' he pressed. "'I try,' I answered. "'Blacks are Jews, man,' he said. "'Yes, Jews come in all colors, brother,' I said. "'Nah, I'm a real Jew,' he said. "'You're an impostor." I stopped engaging at this point while this man, who told me repeatedly that Israel was not mine, that I was a fraud and that Jews are responsible for the mess we find ourselves in today in the city of New York and all over the world. He then lifted up a picture of Louis Farrakhan and asked, You know who this is? I didn't answer. He kept asking and asked louder. Yes, I said, that's an anti-Semite. No, he said, that's a real Jew. You're a fucking fake. At this point, another man on the subway said, He ain't going to take your bait. The first man then said, Yeah, brother. Black power. The second man, about me, quote, He's a photocopy. And lifted up his fist in the black power symbol. The first man went on, And a bunch of them are gays. Fucking faggots. You going to get off the subway stop, man? I'm going home to my wife and kids, I said. Yeah, you a cocksucker, he said. Have a blessed night, I said as I got off the train. On a crowded subway home, no one besides a second man who seemingly held similar ideologies said anything. It's a direct example of how Louis Farrakhan's words hurt. I'm going to turn to Linda Sarsour now. the days, in the months before, about a month and a half, two months before, this article says, ISNA convention uses shame, fear, to stir radical agenda. The article reads, Leading the charge was Linda Sarsour, co-chair of the National Women's March and a founder of a political activist group called Empower Change. Sarsour spoke, to at least four separate sessions during the conference with ISNA President Azhar Aziz in- introducing her as, quote, the most famous known activist in America today. Her tone often was not aimed at inspiring Muslims to be more politically active as much as it was to shame them for not doing so. If they aren't sufficiently engaged in advocating for the Palestinian cause, she said, you, are, you as an American Muslim are complicit in the occupation of Palestinians in the murder of Palestinian protesters. So when we start debating in the Muslim community about Palestine, it tells me a lot about you and the type of faith you have in your heart. Worse still, she says, quote, if you are on the side of the oppressor, if you're defending the oppressor, or you're actually trying to humanize the oppressor, she said, then that's the problem, sisters and brothers, And we got to be able to say, it is not the position of the Muslim American community. It's Linda Sarsour saying, do not try to humanize Israelis. If you're not trying to humanize them, you're trying to dehumanize them. Which is exactly what she accuses people of doing to the Palestinians. Which is exactly what she accuses Israel of doing to the Palestinians. (laughs) Here's some other things about Linda Sarsour. She's warm to Louis Farrakhan. She actually appeared on stage with Reverend Jeremiah Wright, the same one that Obama denounced and separated himself from during the 2008 presidential election. Reverend Wright, who has a record of anti-Semitism and vitriol himself, at Farrakhan's Justice or Else rally in 2015. Sarsour opened her talk with, quote, in the name of God, the most beneficial, the most merciful, addressing the crowd repeatedly as sisters and brothers. Anyone familiar with Farrakhan's anti-Semitic efforts to blame Jews for problems and hardships experienced by blacks in the U.S. could hear a similar message from Sarsour, who asserted, quote, the same people who justify the massacres of Palestinian people and call for collateral damage are the same people who justify the murder of young black men and women." In yet another echo of Farrakhan's rhetoric, Sarsour assured her, quote, sisters and brothers that the, quote, common enemy is white supremacy. She also insisted that, quote, the liberation of the Palestinian people is bound up in the liberation of black people in America. Later on, yet in 2012, Sarsour publicly embraced the Nation of Islam as an integral part of the history of Islam in America, emphasizing that Sunni, Shia, Sufi, nation of Islam, we are all Muslim, and we are all part of one Ummah, one family, hashtag Islam. Two years later, Sarsour insisted that it was not possible to, quote, learn or teach about the history of Islam in America without talking about the nation of Islam. She's also embraced a number of Islamic terrorists, including Razmea Oday, who faces a life sentence in Israel for her involvement in a plot to bomb the British consulate in Jerusalem, as well as a bombing at a Jerusalem grocery store that resulted in two Hebrew University students dead and nine injured. She took a picture with Salah Sassor, who was imprisoned in Israel for laundering money to Hamas. She tweeted for the release of Muhammad Allen, who is currently in an Israeli jail for his work with the terror group Islamic Jihad. She also has a searing hatred for Israel, if you couldn't tell from the previous things that I've said. She has openly stated that she does not believe in a two-state solution due to Israel's building of settlements in Judea and Samaria. Instead, she thinks that Israel should just cease to exist. Quote, My hope is that it will be one state, one man, one vote, that everyone is treated equally. Sarsour told Haaretz, that's an Israeli publication then you can say that part of the world is a true democracy. She's called Zionism creepy and say that it is not compatible with feminism. She's downplayed anti-Semitism, saying that, quote, it can't exactly compare to an anti-black racism or Islamophobia. Now let's shift back to the right. There's a faction of the right that is small, but is significant that we do not talk about enough. And these are pro-Israel anti-Semites. They are pro-Israel because they want Jews out of their country and they want them to go to their own. Just go off and live in the piece of sand that we've given you in the Middle East. This is anti-Semitism in a veiled form because they won't ever say it directly. But there are plenty of examples that you can see. They also believe that all Jews must be in Israel in order for the Messiah to come back. And that when this Messiah comes back, they will all be converted Christianity. Or die. It will be their choice. This is shameful. This is abhorrent. And it's not talked about enough. These people need to be cast out. Back to the left. The boycott, divest, and sanctions movement being propagated by the Students for Justice in Palestine. There is fair criticism of Israel's government. I've in th- at times, I've been critical of Israel's government myself. But openly calling for a boycott, divestments, and sanctions of Israel is inherently anti Semitic for the reasons that we do not do it to any other country on the planet. We don't call for it to any other country on the planet. Instead, they, they go to these college campuses and they push forth this message. There's only one reason that they're calling for a BDS movement of Israel and not of Saudi Arabia. There's only one reason that they're calling for a BDS movement and not of Israel and not a BDS movement of Iran. There's only one reason they're calling for a BDS movement of Israel and not Hamas or the Palestinian Authority, and it is the deep seated Hatred of the Jewish people, and they don't want them to have their own state. They don't want us to have our own state. Hamas, in its charter, says that their goal is to eradicate all Jews. The Palestinian Authority leader, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, has said many, many anti-Semitic things, but I'm only going to mention one right now. He's blamed the Jews for the Holocaust. He wrote in his dissertation, quote, From the 11th century until the Holocaust, that took place in Germany, those Jews who moved to Western and Eastern Europe were subjected to a massacre every 10 to 15 years. But why did this happen? They say it is, quote, it is because we are Jews. Abbas went on to claim that the Holocaust was not the result of anti-Semitism, but rather the Jews, quote, social behavior, charging interest, and financial matters. Now, I didn't even mention the fact that Saudi Arabia, Iran, Hamas, the Palestinian Authority are all guilty of human rights violations far, far worse than anything Israel has ever done. Far worse. So that's where the BDS movement comes in. I could go on more, but I don't have that kind of time. Not on this episode. Jake, why don't you talk about globalism? So globalism, uh, there is
1: a strain on the right that likes to throw around the term globalist a lot. And in common parlance today, it usually refers to the antithesis of protectionism or this willingness to engage in free trade with other countries for competitive advantages or uh, relative economic advantages. And there's a strain that, that shuns globalists because there's there's a sentiment that we should be focusing at on home first, uh, and that we should be manufacturing things domestically. Y- you can fill in the the rest. Uh, it's a, it's a fairly simple idea, but the, the the history of globalist as a term is more troubling. And and the reason that this gets raised recently is that when Trump's economic advisor Gary Cohn left the White House, Trump said he did a terrific job, but might be a globalist. And Cohn is obviously a man of Jewish faith. And that kind of stirred up old emotions about
0: what... I, I actually think that, was, that wasn't Trump. It was another staffer, but the point still stands.
1: The point stands. Yeah. Uh, so that stirred up old emotions. And it's important to talk about the history of globalism as a as a term of art, which really has its roots in what's often called the global Jewish conspiracy. And that's just basically that Jews secretly... Run everything with this invisible hand. Basic. Uh, Richard, it sounds like you want to jump in. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's a the that Jews run shadow governments and all other things. These things are the, this trope is called the Zionist Occupation Government, also known as the Zog. It's called the Zionist Machine. It is the Jewish Global Conspiracy. That's where the term globalist comes in. It's a dog whistle. It's a dog whistle to anti-Semites.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a bullhorn, really. <clears throat> but uh, what I think is so interesting about this, and this is a point that doesn't get made a lot. Uh, I don't even know anybody else who has said this publicly. But it's so interesting that people who are self-identified nationalists simultaneously believe in the Zog. Because the irony being is that the the place that they're so proud of... The, the the soil that they worship so much, in their mind, is also somehow controlled by Jews, who they hate.
0: So <laughs> yeah, I mean, now yeah. Let's also throw in here that just because it has the word Zionist in it, which Zionism I will get to next, but just because it has the word Zionism in it, does not mean it's a reference to Israel. It's not. This ter- these terms were here long before Israel became a country. Long before Israel became a country. So
1: for a while they thought that America might be the new Jerusalem, right? Wasn't there, a, like, when the country was first founded?
0: Yeah, and I just found out that there was a talk to make, there was talks to make uh, in the late 1800s part of California a Jewish state, which I did not know.
1: Yeah, SoCal was supposed to be. That was be.
0: crazy. It been, that's a completely different term than what it is now. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then it was, it was also uh, thought to be in Uganda, but... It ultimately be ended up in Israel where it is now.
1: Hmm. So uh, I don't have too many more thoughts on globalism, but it, it it's important to remember when we use these terms. And then also I want to tire this into the, the larger and broader trend of rising nationalism over the past few years because it's so important to remember that whenever nationalism or socialism is on the rise, the first people to go, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, are the Jews because Jews are traditionally a people without a home. So the more nationalism rises, the more you want to excise the parts that you see as not consistent with your idea of the nation. And that usually starts with the Jews and ends eventually with all of us. Uh, Usually, historically, it it leads to mass destruction. But uh, these two things are not, unrelated the rise in nationalism and the rise in anti-semitism so that's all i have to say about that
0: so turning back to the left zionism zionism is a dog whistle to anti-semites on the left it has turned into a calling for i'm I'm not anti-semitic i'm anti-zionist this is a point that i should have made with the bds movement so let me, let me make it now. First off, if you're somebody who actually does not believe that, that Israel has a right to exist, for a moment, right now, I'm going to for a moment, I'm going to treat your point as valid, even though it's not. If you don't understand why calling for the end of the Jewish state, the only Jewish state in the world, is a dog whistle to anti-Semites. While I don't like making this comparison, I'll say this. After 9-11, do you think Americans did a good job of separating Muslims in this country from the ones in Al-Qaeda? If you didn't, that's all. That's really all you need to hear. There's also criticisms of Israel that are dog whistles to anti-Semites. One of them is the term pinkwashing. Pinkwashing is when you say that Israel is only good on Jewish rights, I'm sorry. Israel is only good on gay rights to distract what they're doing to the Palestinians. It's called pinkwashing. This is vile. This is just the same as globalism. As the the Zionist occupation government, the ZOG says that Jews are controlling things in the background. Pinkwashing is the, one of the oldest tropes of anti-Semitic canard that is, directly, that is directly a reference to the hidden Jewish agenda. If you don't know what the hidden Jewish agenda is, Google it. But it is vile, it is despicable, and this should be eradicated from our discussions on Israel. It's shameful. My next story is going to hit both. Thousands sign a letter saying Trump was not welcome in Pittsburgh. He plans to visit anyway. This is by Allison Chewy and Amy B and Amy Bing Wang, The Washington Post. It says thousands signed a letter. She says leaders of Pittsburgh asked Trump not to come. It's not true. Eight people in an organization called Bend the Ark, which is a Very, very leftist Jewish organization, political organization, put out this letter. In their charter, in Ben the Ark's charter, they say that one of their top priorities is to stop President Trump's agenda. That is one of their top priorities. Eight people put out this letter, and then it was signed by thousands of people. We don't know if those people were in Pittsburgh. We don't know if those people were Pittsburgh leaders, but again, eight people. It's important to note here, the founder of this organization is Alexander Soros. He's the son of George Soros. George Soros is probably the single greatest donor of liberal causes in America. In the history of America. Maybe. Now, people on the left say that people on the right use George Soros As a dog whistle. They say that they put him forth. Too often as a blatant acts. Of anti-semitism. They say that. Using him as a boogeyman. Is abhorrent. It's irresponsible and it's anti-semitic. Because of how often they point the finger at him. I agree. I agree with this. He is used. Far too often. As the vile propagator of the left as a way to promote anti-Semitism. Let me say this. If you agree with me, if you're on the left and you agree with me, if you're on the right and you disagree with me with what I'm saying, let me ask you this. How do you think the left treats the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson? Because it's the exact same thing It's just the other side's doing it and you're pointing fingers. It is the exact same thing and it's shameful. We're getting towards the end here. There's a couple other stories. I'm just going to browse it, but I do want to mention a couple things. I do want to mention a couple things. One of them is there's a story in the Atlantic by Gabby Deutsch. I've mentioned her before. She's a former camper of mine. i I adore her. I adore her sister. I adore her brother. Her father is Congressman Ted Deutsch. The whole family is fantastic. Go Gabby. Go Gabby. <laughs> she wrote an article in the Atlantic titled "How Anti-Semites Hear Trump," and it's about Trump dog whistles. Um, she mentions George Soros. She mentions remember the Holocaust, but but not the Jews. She remember she mentions. America First policy, the very fine people on both sides, and glo- and she gets into globalist versus nationalist. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go any further because we've been going on for quite a while, but it's a great read and take, take the time. Other bad stories on the right, this is what Jake was alluding to earlier. When I first saw these, I just assumed that they were copycat uh, crimes from, I assume they were copycat crimes from the the Pittsburgh shooter. There has been vandalism on multiple synagogues in the country in Irvine, California, in Brooklyn, the Jake mentioned and others. We cannot allow it to continue. The fact that we need armed guards. I always have for my small community, which is that's in a different article that Gabby wrote in the Atlantic about how small communities are used to it. And we're not sh- shocked when it happened. That's true. These are the last couple to go back. First off, David Halbfinger wrote an article in the New York Times on October 29th entitled, Pittsburgh Killing Aftermath Bears Jewish Rifts in Israel and America. I've talked about Israel a lot in this last part of this, the show. I've talked about how anti Semitism in Israel is clearly is clearly linked. There is no point in writing an article in the New York Times about the Jewish rifts in Israel and America after a slaughtering of Jews in America. Israel has nothing to do with it. Nothing. except that it's being used by the left as a way to propagate anti-Semitism. And it's being used by the right as a way to propagate anti-Semitism. So by mentioning the the rifts in the Jewish community in Israel and America, you are doing a disservice. The last thing I want to mention is Sean King. And I hate that I'm ending on this, but I'm doing it for a reason. The shooting took place in about... 9.50, 9.55 on October 27th, 9.55 a.m. At 12.46 p.m. on October 27th, Sean King tweets out, It's amazing just how capable American police are at peacefully arresting heavily armed white men who just murdered scores of people without shooting, tasering, or even scratching them. I'm not even playing. I commend them. We just like that expertise in our communities too. He tweeted this three hours after the shooting began. We had no information. We had no idea who the shooter was. We had no idea what efforts were made to arrest him Because they didn't know presumably if he was acting alone, yet, which ended up being the case, he also took the shooter also sustained several several shots to the body. Sean King has a very wide following, and he clearly has an agenda. He does a lot of work with the Black Lives Matter. To tweet something like this, while some of us were scrambling to make contact with our loved ones in Pittsburgh, is shameful. It's shameful. It's inaccurate. And he had no way of confirming that it was inaccurate. And if you want to say, well, look, the point was they took him alive. Again, I tell you, arresting peacefully, arresting heavily armed white men who just murdered scores of people without shooting, tasering, or even scratching them. He didn't mention killing them. He mentioned shooting, tasering, or even scratching Some of us are upset that they didn't kill him. Think about that. We've gone on for a while, and I'm going to conclude the episode now. But I just wanted to say, we can do better. We must do better. These attacks on our community are abhorrent. And they should not be tolerated i think this is
1: one of the most important episodes we've done to date and i do want to just express my pride that my co-host did this this is actually the second time we've taped this we had technical problems the first time uh but i thought it was so important and the way that he very much systematically went through each facet of this issue uh i'm proud to be involved in this and I want to thank Richard
0: for letting me be a part of this. Thank you, Jake. Inside the Jewish community, outside of the Jewish community, we we need, we have to do better, like I said. And and this is, now is not the time for division. Now is not the time to be ostracizing certain parts of our community. Jews make up 2% of the country. 350 million people live in America. 2% is roughly 7 million. The FBI statistics report that Jews are 50% of hate crimes that occur in America. 50%. Blaming Jews for the persecution of Jews is not only the road to national ruin, it's the road to Jewish ruin. And we've got to stand together now. And on that note, thanks for hearing us, but mostly me, out. I'm Jake Rome. And I'm Richard Leibovitz. Till next time.
1: You've been listening to Dialogue De Novo. Until next time, thanks for hearing us out. Dialogue de Novo is produced by Richard Labovitz and Jacob Rome. Executive producers Richard Labovitz and Jacob Rome. Supervising producer Michael Cough. Technical producers Richard Labovitz and Jacob Rome.
0: Edited by Richard Labovitz.
1: Audio mixed by Richard Labovitz and Jacob Rome.
0: Dialogue de Novo is a Loyola University Chicago School of Law student-initiated capstone project founded by Richard Labovitz and Jacob Rome. Technical production made possible by SoundCloud. Copyright 2018.